they did not only, so we, we're not at the end of the year. They are already at 10 billion. Um, they already said that next year it might be more. Um, and it already was money last year and the year before. So as said, over the period of the next 10 years, right? I'm not saying that that is, but it might be uh, as cost intense, uh, inflation corrected to today as the whole Apollo mission <laughs> was uh, on that ratio. So um, th that's definitely a tough bet. All that and more in this episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Welcome to the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. Your one stop to learn about the technology that's powering the future of commerce. Here are your hosts, Dirk and Kelly. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Kelly. Hello. Hey, Kelly. And today we're not having a special guest. We're doing a special episode. Uh, Kelly, maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we were thinking, you know, maybe every fifth, sixth episode, something like that, we just chat. Uh, we chat about the industry. Um, we chat about uh, where the market's heading. We look at some research that's coming out from the likes of Gartner and Forrester. Um, just to chat. I mean, we're both uh, in this space and uh, I would hopefully argue as knowledgeable as many of our guests are. So we thought, why not just have a chat uh, between the two of us? Yeah, basically, we're just recording our weekly one-on-one, -on -one, uh, <laughs> sharing that with the public. So let's let's see how that is going. And uh, I think we appreciate any feedback, right? So wh wherever you hear about that episode, if it's on LinkedIn or uh, one of the platforms um, that you're subscribing to on the podcast, uh, just leave us your feedback and then uh, uh, helps us to improve for the next episode. Yeah. So, Dirk, where have you been traveling to? Anywhere fun? Well, um, I've been to New York recently, uh, meeting meeting some partners and customers. Um, that was great. And next week, um, I will be speaking at the Web Summit uh, in Lisbon um, next Friday. Um, actually, two talks. Um, if some of you should be around, uh, we'll talk about um, the future of commerce, um, where the market is heading to in the next couple of years. And then I'm sitting on a panel where we talk about the European startup ecosystem. So I think it will be interesting. And for those who cannot make it to Lisbon, um, though I think it's a beautiful time of the year, um, as far as I know, they stream a lot of the content online. Um, so should be able to receive it there as well. How about you? So for, for the American listeners, maybe you could explain Web Summit. I didn't realize how big of a deal it was. <laughs> it's a huge conference, actually. Don't, so it's 40, 50,000 attendees or more uh, coming. It's the largest uh, tech conference um, in Europe. Um, started uh, from uh, a guy from Dublin um, already more than a decade ago. It uh, was more like a sofa surfing conference at the very beginning. And uh, it uh, more than doubled uh, year over year. Uh, then he had been outgrowing, I would say, major cities in Europe uh, to be able to host this festival. I, I'm not sure what a U.S. comparison would be. Maybe the Austin uh, Southeast by Southwest Festival is something that you could see some some overlap. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good analogy for sure. I've never been. I would love to. And there are so many good conferences, whether it's New Mexico or, I mean, the Code Talks is always good. There are so many good European-centric um, conferences that we just, yeah, I think we just we, we an, so there's in Hamburg, the OMR that is getting to, to, um, also similar kind of size now, um, which is, um, in Europe, maybe, 
similar event at the Web Summit. And then there's in Munich, the smaller bits and pretzels, a little bit more focused um, on the startup ecosystem. Um, but I think when it comes to mixing tech, startups, business, entertainment, um, Web Summit was probably in Europe the first one who, who made it big. Yeah, no, makes sense. So how about you? Any Anything fun? I heard you had been shopping uh, in New York. Um, <laughs> so how, how was that going? That was great. So that was the first ever retail walking tour um, that we've done as a company. And I got together with 15 folks from across the industry and along with uh, industry analyst Rick Watson and fellow podcaster, uh, we went to, how many was it? Nine retail uh, locations across New York. So we went to Lululemon, Lego, Restoration Hardware, just checking out cool retail. Um, so that was that was interesting. That was fun. And uh, I already see, I won't name names, but uh, I, I see somebody is already uh, directly copying it, word almost word for word. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that, that's fast. Uh, they, they, they tend to do that uh, since a while with us, but that, that, that's actually fast. Okay. Well, uh, it will be hard to copy you uh, in that role. And I got great feedback um, from, from lots of people about that, that attended but also that heard about us so it might become a series right so uh multiple <laughs> cities uh, uh, uh. so many of those <laughs> events are just so static and you know just go to a cocktail mixer or something and you know talk to random people i i don't know you know the introvert in me always says no that's a terrible idea but getting folks together and you know walking physically i i think it really brings folks together and then next week i'm actually headed to austin for our america's partner summit which will be great. So I always love meeting our partners. We have, I don't know, 230-ish attendees. And, Amazing. Um, yep. Great great to get together with everyone. And, you know, I always get uh, energized coming out of these things. Now, it will be a fun event, right? So the EMEA uh, one um, was was great um, this year already. Um, I think the U.S. Um, Partner Summit will be awesome. Uh, next year, it will probably be um, a global event. Right, um, we'll put um, a lot more things together. Um, so yeah, uh, have a lot of fun there. I think that will be good. Um, so uh, looking at what what happened this week, um, also on the stock market, um, do you have a new MetaQuest Pro already, Kelly? Um, I actually have an Oculus Go from about four years ago. That is, sitting oh, that's in why my they're they, they miss you uh, bringing revenue uh, on the business <laughs> side. Um, so, how do you, how do you think about uh, the, the latest uh, information from the from, from Meta's earnings call um, earlier this week? <laughs> I wouldn't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. Um, he is uh, spending like a drunken sailor, as they say, in pursuit of his goal of uh, becoming the leader in this whole metaverse. And I, you know, I've always been pretty skeptical about virtual reality. And I, when I bought my Oculus Go, I did a LinkedIn article saying, this is the future. It's amazing. And then I stopped using it and I never used it again, really. Um, even my kids don't use it. And then I posted a public retraction saying, yeah, that article I wrote uh, last year was a bad idea. It is not going to be the future. It was a novelty is what it was. And it only took six months, a year of not using it. And I think virtual reality is just so limiting, right? It's a very, um, uh, I don't know, it's a, um, it, 
takes away, well, I mean, by definition, it takes away your focus from the world around you. And I don't think there are a lot of people who want to sit on their couch and just be completely disconnected from the world and the people around them. And technology wise, you know, I've, I've heard and I've seen firsthand, it's just not really there yet. They have so much work to do. You know, there's a whole uh, debacle about uh, the avatars not having feet and legs. <laughs> you know, that was a big issue. Um, there, was a, there was a good meme going around on, on Twitter. Um, it was a picture of Mark Zuckerberg at the earnings call. And he had a live audience assembled. And all of the attendees had on these big VR headsets and nobody could see anything. And the caption on the image was uh, Mark blindfolding the uh, attendees so they couldn't see the awful earnings. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it's it's definitely a tough position, right? So uh, that, that he is in. And as you said, um, I, I also uh, probably wouldn't um, like to uh, switch roles here. Um, I Personally, I'm also skeptical, right? Um, which um, I, I always say, don't see yourself as a main user, right? Because you might be uh, led into the wrong direction. Um, I, on my end, believe more that um, augmented reality um, might um, be the bigger play here. And um, an argument could be that the metaverse is not only something for VR, but also for mixed reality on, a, uh, on an AR side um, over time. When I step as a person a little bit aside, I see a few pro and a few contra arguments, right? So on the pro side, um, could say that with the shift to home office, right, um, over the last uh, two years um, accelerated by the pandemic, people still would like to, to chat and collaborate. And uh, all these Zooms and Meets and Teams um, and so on um, are a good solution. Maybe... Um, a metaverse um, is a nice enhancement to that um, on on some parts of the collaboration, right? Um, uh, I, I think when when and, and that's a contra piece to that. When when they say okay, uh, I, I think that that was what Mark said at the earnings call. How many people are buying computers um, every year um, to work on them? Um, I don't see myself filling out spreadsheets in Excel. Um, in the metaverse, right? So uh, the, the question is if we still need to fill out spreadsheets, but I don't see the metaverse solving that task for me, um, but I will not sit on a computer in the metaverse and filling out spreadsheets, right? So that that's maybe too much of a level on abstraction. There might be some e-commerce use cases though, right? If you want to talk to a pharmacist, right? Um, uh, you, you have a prescriptive medicine that you need to get. Um, you might be able to order it online, um, but instead of having the chat, Right, um, you have a virtual conversation um, with somebody there. So metaverse could could do something interesting here. Um, I think on on fashion um, there might be some some angles. Um, so a lot of investments coming from large fashion brands um, that even uh, host shows uh, already within the metaverse. But to your point, um, no, no, do you know the Nintendo Wii? Right, so they're also these little uh, beings. I think did not had any legs. Um, they they look very very simple. And what I what I wonder is where all the money that they're investing is going. Um, when when I read it correctly, um, then they already spent roughly ten billion just this year alone um, on everything that's in their um, VR department. Um, I think virtual reality department, however, they call that division. Um, 
So that's a lot of money, 10 billion. Um, so I, I was looking for an analogy for this podcast. And do you know what the whole Apollo mission has cost from <laughs> 1960 to 1973? Um, so over a time of 13 years, including building all the transport rockets, all Apollo missions, landing on the moon, everything, 25 billion <laughs> over 13 years. Um, of course, if you and, and they, they, there's an inflation correction, and what would be the related cost to that today, which is roughly 200 billion. But they did not only, so we, we're not at the end of the year, they are already at 10 billion. Um, they already said that next year it might be more. Um, and it already was money last year and the year before. So, as said, over the period of the next 10 years, right? I'm not saying that that is, but it might be uh, as cost intense, uh, inflation corrected to today as a whole Apollo mission <laughs> was uh, on that ratio. So um, th that's definitely a tough bet. Well, we'll see if Mark can pull it off. I mean, I do, I do appreciate entrepreneurs who take risks and do big things. Absolutely. Because the easiest thing for him to do would have been to leave a point a third party CEO and I mean, basically ride the decline for the next 10 years and then hit the lecture circuit. And, <laughs> you know, that would have been the easy way out. Um, so I appreciate that Mark is doing something big here. Um, we'll see if you can pull it off. I'm much more excited about augmented reality, especially for commerce, because I can imagine myself having on glasses or contacts or something and, there are so many e-commerce use cases, right? If you want to look at somebody's shoes that you like, maybe you pop up a virtual price tag. And what's great about augmented reality is, is there's so much in the world that could be brought to the view of a user, whether it's um, pricing information. You know, maybe you're walking through a store and you want to look at competitive pricing for a product or product reviews or, you know, which of your friends have purchased this uh, Apple Watch, for example. And that's all possible. And I think there's a good story to be told there around augmented reality once those devices are firmly um, in the, the consumer realm. I just, I wish Google Glass hadn't fizzled out so early. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I agree to your comment on entrepreneurship, right? So even even this wouldn't be probably our path or my path, right? Um, uh, Mark isn't giving up. Right. Um, I have a lot of critics on what happened to Facebook and social media in general. Right. So, but that's not part of that podcast. Um, but at the end, he's not giving up and he needs to grow user base. He has a company that's one of the largest in the world, publicly listed. He has reliability to shareholders, to employees, uh, lots of people. So, um, instead of saying, Hey, let's the business decline, I need to try to find the next big thing. Right. And, um, Time will tell if he's right or not, um, but at least from the side, it's definitely an interesting story to watch, right? Um, so, but maybe to, let, let's get a little bit more into into um, our business now. Yeah. So, what do you think about this whole? Uh, I, I mean, I I hate to even call it a recession because I think the more people say that it is, then it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, which I don't want to be in the business of doing, but. It, clearly something bad is happening in our, uh, in our economy right now, our global economy. Um, and you just gave a great speech at our all hands this week and would love a, you know, a, a quick summary of that. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think we need to separate from the overall media, right? Zone that's uh, living by bad news um, and and um, uh, yeah, uh, painting maybe not an overly correct um, picture of what's going on. But what is truly happening is that the world is at the moment um, at a, a couple of inflection points, and a lot of negative things are happening, right? So definitely, uh, uh, Russia attacking uh, the Ukraine, um, uh, causing uh, not only um, their um, all that um, human issues, but also then um, accelerating um, the energy shortages um, and uh, dependencies within Europe, um, challenges that we have on uh, supply chain um, uh, deliveries or dependencies um, still from the pandemic, right, um, that haven't been resolved and uh, depending analyst forecast still taking years until they resolve, if even, given that uh, also... Um, I would say the tension uh, with the Western world and the Chinese governments is probably not going to decrease. Um, a lot of uncertainty, definitely. Um, with the, the time of cheap money um, being over um, and uh, the Fed and also um, uh, the, the uh, European bank increasing the interest rates um, to f yeah, basically fight against recession, um, New capital is getting getting expensive as well, um, which uh, a lot of companies are now feeling. So we, we see a lot of things having changed in the economy coming from that within just the last eight months. Right? So I think in, in our industry, the most visible one was that um, company valuations have changed, um, very visible on the public markets, of course, because growth um, is now at least a little less attractive um, from a shareholder perspective um, than it was before um, as the money um, cost related to that growth um, got a little bit more expensive, right? So from the other end, and this is, I think, what, what you had been uh, mentioning in your question is that opens a lot of opportunities, um, especially in the commerce market. And I think um, none of our listeners want to hear us talking about politics right, and, and <laughs> economy. There are probably better podcasts and better experts um, out there than us. Um, but what we see is that companies are shifting um, budgets um, in specific directions. So things that have been nice to have in the last two years um, are now probably on hold or getting deprioritized. On the other hand, um, digital investments um, that help on the one end um, save cost, optimize processes, plus increase agility, user experience, and the ability to increase the revenue streams, um, investments there even accelerate, right? And um, I think it was Gartner um, who brought out... Uh, a recent um, IT spending study, which is pretty in line what we see with the market. Um, that first CFOs um, are shortening the return of investment cycle. Often new digital initiatives um, had a expected return of investment around 36 months, um, sometimes even longer. Um, now, uh, digital budget um, that is spent um, is expected to have a full return within 12 to 18 months, right? So and that is what all software vendors, um, IT service providers, agencies need to reflect, not only, of course, in their messaging, but also in their delivery. Um, and 
on the other end, right, um, if it helps to increase the user experience in a measurable way, measurable means um, in, in commerce, uh, higher conversion rates, uh, larger baskets, uh, higher customer retention, um, uh, shorter, shorter uh, um, uh, cycles when, when customers buy again, um, that definitely will help because on the other end, customer acquisition is still very expensive, right? So for, for a brand, for example, in B2C, acquiring a new customer costs significantly more money instead of, right? So just retaining somebody and having, making them, um, placing, placing multiple orders, um, over the course of a year. Yeah, and you know what is this impact having on on valuations and and on the overall ecosystem itself? Are you still seeing funding? You know what's what's happening there? Uh, yeah, for us, I think Kelly, we, we're so <laughs> commerce tools. We're doing fine, but I think everybody knows it. I think a lot of companies um, definitely definitely seeing challenges in the next. 12 months but honestly um let's send them to startups.com or or uh, <laughs> or TechCrunch, um somebody there um I, I think they covered that morning to evening um on, on how that's going i heard an interesting stat netflix and I'll, i'm gonna screw this up but it's netflix lost more than half of its value six different times in the past 10 years with the constant ups and downs in the market. And it's interesting, if you look at a chart of their market cap, it's it's up and down, but the trend line is, um, you know, almost at a 45 degree angle, right? They've they've been growing and it's that, just- That's volatile. a point. Yeah, that's a point. So great businesses, great businesses also over time always will perform well. I think if the fundamentals haven't changed, if the companies are growing, um, if you deliver um, great value to your customers, so it means um, there is a strong product market fit. Um, if the economical model is right, and um, that mostly goes to the efficiency of the business, right? So for SaaS companies, like being above the rule of 40, having a good magic number, um, good uh, uh, yeah, uh, return on customer acquisition cost uh, cycles, and so on. First, you will always get money. Yes, if companies have raised at a super high valuation last year, it will take them now a little bit on time on growing into that. Um, but as you said, if you look not just on the last two years, but look at the last 10 years, companies that are doing well, right, the overall valuation is still significantly up compared to where it had been five, six years ago. Of course, also the revenue numbers are now higher, but markets are volatile. And now we're at a complete, probably we haven't reached the bottom yet, but we are definitely at, at one of the largest crises, uh, uh, at least from energy shortages and other things. You, said recession i also still struggle a little bit with it because uh in europe i've never seen more cars on the streets uh restaurants are fully booked out so um it's which is also unfair because a lot of people are feeling that very very hard um they are just less visible right so and probably also not part of our network um and and that's why why we need to be very very careful on not uh, looking looking from from us to the to the broader market but it's Definitely a different situation, right? So because in most of the recessions uh, in, in the last 40 years, um, it went aside with a very high unemployment rate. 
that's not the case, right? So across all industries, um, so the demand is still high. So it's a different different recession than normally um, injected by energy and supply chain shortages, um, uh, matching still uh, high demand or, or yeah, uh, seeing seeing high demand still on the other side. And we have to figure out all together, uh, both as societies, but, but also as companies, how we navigate through that. But on the commerce side, I think, uh, getting back to that, there are lots of opportunities, right? So let's say our customers saving money and achieving two times of what had been able before. And um, that definitely is one one way uh, through this crisis. And talking about that, right? So as people are here for the tech, um, the hype cycle of Gartner, right? So uh, let's, let's talk about trends and, and curves that go up and down, Um the hype cycle was published this summer. Um, what is a hype cycle, Kelly? And maybe you can take us through that, and then we'll share the link to that in the show notes. Sure. Um, yeah, hype cycles are are very important. Um, Gartner publishes them on different categories. I think probably 50, 75 hype cycles they end up publishing every year. And it's a it's a it's a chart, and it shows basically a, a bell curve, but on the end of the bell curve, on the far right side of the bell curve, um, it goes all the way um, up and over. So there's an innovation trigger, right? And like the metaverse, for example, is is there, um, you know, front end as a service is there. Um, there are these um, innovations, these nascent innovations, and they rise up this curve. And at the top, you have the peak of inflated expectations. And those are all things I think we've we've all seen that get a little bit overhyped. Um, you know, in tech, obviously we, we as an industry are good at overhyping things. And you know, you see that with with things like um, you know some marketplace related functionality, for example. Um, you know, that's it's I think a little uh, overhyped these days. Um, there are a bunch of these things. Um, you know, there's digital shelf analytics, for example, they list. Um, you know, payments as a package service. Um, you could argue the metaverse itself. So, you know, they have a couple different dots representing different parts of this, this metaverse thing. But, you know, inevitably there's a peak of inflated expectations. And then it goes all the way down, right? So think of it as going down the right side of a bell curve. And it's called the trough of disillusionment, which is kind of like it's 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 coming off the hype, basically. Right. And over time, um, innovations go across the cycle and eventually you hit the slope of enlightenment, which is when you have an innovation that actually becomes useful and delivers on the hype that was originally promised. But it takes a lot longer and it takes a lot more time to get to that point. So it's kind of hard. Podcasting isn't a very good medium for showing a visual hype cycle, but I think you've all seen them before. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's talk about a few few. Um of the terms um, and and hypes um, that they have included on the cycle. What's interesting is that um, there are three to four topics on it um, that often in our industry is starting to become mixed uh, and 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 uh, used. Uh, I, I would say even in the same same context, right? So let me say so. Still at an at an up curve at the beginning um, of it, we find composable commerce. Um, at the top of the peak of the hype, uh, we find modular commerce. Um, then um, already on the way down, getting through of disillusionment, 
um, we are having API-based digital commerce. Um, so from some vendors out there, um, and when I look at my LinkedIn bubble, um, that sounds to be all the same. Is there a difference in between? Um, yes, but it's very nuanced. And I wish as an industry, we didn't do this to ourselves because when you talk to actual humans who are looking at, at these different offerings, they're all exceptionally confused. <laughs> um, so to summarize, and you know, this is personal interpretation, um, API-based commerce is what uh, vendors offer. So they publish their data, their functionality out as APIs. It's a very vendor-centric term. Modular commerce is saying, okay, um, we're going to put microservices behind these APIs. So individual modules fronted by APIs are now being produced by the vendor. And then composable commerce is more of a, a retailer or brand focused view. It's to say, we want to compose an experience for our end shoppers, and we're going to do it using different modules or different APIs. So a legacy platform out there, and I won't name names, but a legacy platform um, might be API based, but still monolithic behind the scenes. And I think it's better than having a, a head on the, the platform, which is great. But you know, the more advanced ones are API based and modular behind the scenes. And the modularity allows organizations to adopt specific modules, right? An organization could just start with promotions or just start with PIM or just start with a shopping cart. Whereas an API based platform that's monolithic behind the scenes requires you to use the whole thing. And then composable again is more of the, you know, I'm a retailer. I want to go do best of breed from five different vendors and I'm going to pick and choose a, you know, shopping cart, a promotion engine, a payment gateway, a search and a CMS, right? And you're going to pick those things that compose the experience. What do you think? Is that a did I summarize that? Already? It's a good, you know, it's a good, good summary, right? So some of these, um, let's hype or, or technology trends are depending on each other, right? So therefore, as you said, there's um, it's it's a very thin line in between. Uh, what what I just uh, thought about is I wonder when low code composable commerce is getting on the list. For for me, this feels like uh, being being then the next thing. Okay, how can I make even the uh, stitching these things together. Um, I've always, you know, personally, I've always been a little bit skeptical of low and no code. And I'll, I'll tell you my bias. My bias is business users don't necessarily know what they want. And to allow a business user or a less technical person to write some pseudo code, I've frankly found them to screw it up more times than not. And then that requires a developer to get involved and it would be faster just to have the developer do it. But I'm sure there are a lot of smart people investing in this space. I'm sure I'm missing something. What's your view on this? I, I'm not down in the details as well um, and, and probably not up to date, right? Um, if you think on on um, smart uh, machine learning based um, coding technologies and you I, I see it a little bit more like a workflow engine um, where you define basically what are the specific tasks and processes that you would like to stitch together. Um, and, and as most of these components are based on APIs or, or expose their functionality via APIs, there are standard ways to combine them. Um, so 
most of the integration, I would say, you could probably already um, touch with a very smart um, low-code solution um, that has the development capability in there. What I struggle about is how do you define and develop and continue to evolve a great customer experience on the front end, right? So that's not the hardest part of the code because it's markup and, and it's representation, um, but it requires um, a great UI, at least on on some touch points, right? On, on touch points that are more voice-based or if we are talking about um, your, your uh, AR vision, Right, uh, where things are getting getting presented to you straight in the eye, there, there, um, the user interface is changing definitely, and then we are in a completely different different environment. But yeah, I, I don't think that a no code example, at least for very sophisticated enterprise companies like a Lego or H and M or Lululemon, right? So where, where the customer experience matters so much, can just be dragged and dropped, right? So um, that, that that would say that we are all all Picassos here and, and have that creative ability and probably where so I'm definitely not right. So whoever sees me painting thinks I'm a four year old. So therefore um, uh, I, I think we all have different abilities. <laughs> so yeah. As my father-in-law says, we're all blessed in our own unique ways. <laughs> it's a good point. So um, true. Yep. So something I was curious about was front end as a service. And if I look at this, it's still in the trigger innovation phase. It's still very much going up this peak of inflated expectations. And honestly, given the relative maturity of that market, I would have expected it to already be in the trough of disillusionment. And I'm curious if you could define front end as a service. Uh, you, of course, having bought the the dominant vendor in this space uh, a year ago, and um, maybe just explain why you think it's it's not yet in the trough of disillusionment, which to be honest, I'm kind of happy about, but <laughs> just, I'm curious. Yeah, it's why. an it's an it's an um, interesting point, right? And and I think it's maybe a little bit of of guessing um, in the explanation, um, as, as there might be might be different views um, on that. Um, so first, front end as a service, right? Um, in in the modern world of commerce, um, where the functionality of um, um, a shop um, or a shopping application, might it be a website, can be an app, can be something um, uh, somewhere else where you can buy a product um, enabled um, on, a, on a digital device. Um, the functionality runs in the back, right? Um, that's when we, when we talk about APIs. Um, so the product catalog data, the pricing, the card functionality, ordering, um, promotions, and so on. Um, and you separate it from the so-called head or front end where the experience sits, right? So everything that we that we feel, the design, the buttons, um, and basically companies have two ways on on um, combining um, those two two ends, right? Um, either you build it, um, which is less complicated, I think, than than most people most people think. Um, or um, you go for so-called front-end as a service, which is a flexible solution that can run simply set on API-based or also or, uh, so-called headless commerce solutions, right? And uh, make it a little bit easier to launch, um, a little less building, um, standardizing um, things a little bit faster. Um, basically, it gives brands the ability um, to maybe launch quicker, um, with to some degree decreasing, at least at the beginning, um, 
their flexibility a bit, right? So it's a it's a smart thing. And as uh, when you look at sites like Amazon, Walmart, Best Buy, right? So including our customers like Lululemon's, Lego, Sephora's, and so on, they all API based, right? So and the but but customers don't buy through APIs, right? So machines can buy through APIs, customers don't. So they they need front ends. Um, so there was obviously a need. Um, in the space um, to provide solutions here. And um, I think now with, with our um, solution um, through the acquisition of Frontastic, so Commerce Tools Front End, um, there's also, for example, View Storefront. Um, there are other solutions out there in the market. Um, it's actually already pretty mature from the technology stack um, and also from the people who are uh, working at these, these companies. But also to your degree, the market is probably still, and, and I think that's what the hype cycle is reflecting, a little bit behind on the expectation. So now getting to your to your question, why is that? And there I just have a little, little provocative, I, I would say, belief um, there is. Um, the the What I often have heard, and I will not I try to avoid here mentioning vendor names, is that there are so many commerce technologies out there now being fully headless and therefore there's a huge market where these solutions can run on top of the reality from my perspective is that most of these commerce solutions that you see out there that you find uh, i think we'll talk about that uh, for example in the gartner magic quadrant or uh, on, on some some uh, forester waves uh, idc marketscape or um, other lists are seem to be significantly less headless than they they are supposed to be, um, which makes it harder um, to expose um, a front-end as a service solution on the one end. And secondly, they're very opinionated. So when, when, I, when I look at the, the Gartner Magic Quadrant, um, for an example, uh, or, or the Forrester Wave, um, let, let me look at that now. Okay. There's literally no solution on it except ours that is not opinionated on providing an own front end. So which means if you come in as a front end as a service solution on many of these vendors, you first need to rip off or take away the front end that this had been sold with, right? And therefore the question is, okay, is this even too much effort? Is it harder to explain? I don't know, but that's one of the explanations that I have why the customers want headless, but to some degree they're running on solutions that are not API-led or fully API-led, enabling that in the full way. And and I hear you, right? So I, let, let's call out one name here, right? So, oh yeah, but Shopify also provide great APIs. And then there is a comma and then they say, but only on the product catalog, not on the card. So check out is again back to that. I say, okay, no, either you're 100% or you're not. You cannot have a half electric vehicle. All the front two wheels, they have an electric engine, but the back to wheels, they have a gasoline engine, right? So is it an electric vehicle? It's not even a hybrid probably, right? By definition. Oh. Yeah, well said. I agree very much. But it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that space shapes up. I think there's a lot of innovation happening there. And I still see so many organizations, you know, probably a solid majority building everything from scratch, even in the front ends. And I think there's generally a shift towards, um, best of breed yep. composable mock-based solutions and absolutely in the same way it doesn't make sense to build the shopping cart from scratch it 
probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to build front end from scratch either. Well, I think this is probably a good place to wrap. Um, thanks for taking the time. This is great. And um, I, I look forward to doing more of these with you. Oh, absolutely. It was a fun conversation. I hope uh, also others liked it. Uh, so uh, look, looking forward to some feedback. Uh, if you should stop that and, and say only invite guests, please, uh, or if we <laughs> uh, should cover more more topics in that format. All right. Well, thanks again. And thanks again to our audience for uh, for being here with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly.